This is an Audio Wool original. This week's episode of Fright Day is brought to you by Spring Heel Jack Coffee. You need great coffee. Jack delivers. Visit springheeljack.coffee. So the lady that plays the nun has also such credits as Bum in Mulholland Drive. Oh, that's super uh, cool Blue Skinned Woman. Fat Tina. Okay. Lady in the Bathroom. She's oh, actually right. not bad looking, though. Like her Strange picture, she's lady. really not. No way. Crackhead Bonnie in The Fighter. Cool. Yeah. yeah. The Crone. Well, that's fun. is Fright Day. I'm your host, Byron. Following the discovery of a hanging nun in Romania, a tortured past priest and a soon-to-be sister are on the case. Evil doesn't just happen. It has to start somewhere. Tonight, we enter into an earlier and darker entry of the Wanra, reviewing Corn Hardy's The Nun. And we hear the thoughts of the highest-ranking witness of the Rendlesham incident and additional regional high strangeness in this week's edition of Kelly's Cryptids and Conspiracies. I'm joined tonight by Kelly. Hi. And Sam. Hey, guys. We just left the theater. We did. Remember when we used to do this every time? Oh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, yeah. we watch a movie together and then talk about it. I know. Now I'm old, though. I'm like, God, this is a lot, guys. It really I is. think what my plan is going to be from now on with the movies, now that we have the dine-in theater, I'm going to go to see movies I don't care about sure in the eat theater uh-huh. and movies i care about in the don't eat theater honestly it was pretty good today i felt like the crowd wasn't bad well, at well, all well, guys let's pump the brakes i don't want to yeah, get too deep into that but i mean kelly no did eat a bowl of shrimp next to me on top of nachos it was it, nachos with shrimp on it there was no bowl of shrimp well all of their food should be pudding it should be scentless and inoffensive but it was delicious um next time i'm going with the sushi though well well, you guys won't let me get the Brussels sprouts anymore. Gross, so. Kelly. Stop it. I love Brussels sprouts. It is September. September. It's not November. November. But you did watch a movie called that. I did. You've been talking about it all week. I have. It's one of those movies that makes me feel like I can be a snob because it's definitely like a highfalutin horror. Uh, it's kind of different from the one we saw tonight in the sense that it's super cerebral. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've even seen clips from it, Byron. I have. I've seen the trailer and I know that a writer for Frightening.com, Elizabeth, covered it. Yeah. It's absurdly beautiful. Grossly beautiful. It's like a weird folklore Lars von Trier, David Lynch, the witch thing. And where is it from? Estonia. Really? It's Estonian. And it brings in a bunch of actual Estonian folklore. Mm-hmm. There are these really cool possessed tripod things. Okay. Tom Cruise's War of the Worlds. It's smaller than that. It's like the size of a big dog, I guess. Huh. Ooh. And you, they you, like you do see a little clip of that in the trailer. They spin around and like collect things for people and they like will strap these old animal skulls onto it. It's very weird. It's very pretty. Can you give me a little bit about the plot, though? Well, the plot has to do with this village, and these people are starving to death. They're peasants. Yeah. It's supposed to take place in medieval times, Okay. although it's weird. Go ahead. You're, you're Sam got really was, excited about something. I was just really excited about making a medieval times joke, and then I just didn't have one. That's I'm right. so sorry, it's, honey. It's pretty late, and we had a long day. It, the plot surrounds this village of people that are starving mm-hmm. and trying to make ends meet, literally. There's a love story that's yeah. underneath it. A young woman trying to get a young man to fall in love with her. Yeah, and it's actually a very beautiful love story because he's in love with somebody else, and she's so in love with him that she doesn't want him to get his heart broken by this other woman. Like, she's okay with her love being unrequited if it means that he can be happy. So it's not in the dark ages. It's in the 1800s. It says it takes place in medieval times. Are you saying that just because it's in black and white? No, it said that in the synopsis that I read somewhere. It does say in a medieval Estonian village on IMDb. Yeah. Yeah. But it's 19th century Estonia. Well, that would explain some of my confusion about the costumes. The village is probably from dates to the Middle Ages. Well, 
It's very cool, very beautiful. I think everyone should watch it. It's streaming on Shutter right now. Oh wow, okay. Um, that's actually how I happened upon it because I was like, oh, I gotta check out Shutter. I haven't seen anything on there in a while. Yeah, and you can use promo code Fright Day for a free thirty day trial. What? What? Um, I, watch it. It was actually their submission for the Academy Awards. Yeah, and they, yeah, which is pretty cool to have a horror movie as the movie that a country submits to the Academy Awards for international. They did the same thing with Thelma last year. Yes, there you go. See, you guys, everybody should watch this. It's a beautiful cinematic experience. Lars von Trier, David Lynch, The Witch, Folklore. I watched something, I mean, a little less smart than that. It's a little series on the USA Network. Oh, boy. I watched the first episode of The Purge television. Oh, God, I forgot that was this week. How was it? Uh, well that bad huh no 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 Let that me... face it real bad well that it was, bad it was actually just me looking at my bad notes oh, oh okay it's fine just wrinkled in his brow really hard trying to make sense of those yeah. random keystrokes right. like that the fine like <laughs> so this, it's the show is just terrible i no, guess don't listen the show's fine it starts about 90 minutes before the commencement of a purge I'm trying to identify where in the timeline, believe it sits somewhere between the first Purge and the first Purge movie. God, that's confusing. It comes after the most recently released Purge. But before the first one that came out. With Ethan Hawke. Yes. As much as I'd like to say it didn't have this element, it did have USA characters welcome pacing. Uh, All night. Just a little bit of um, (sighs) white collar in there. Just a little suits, a little bit of... (laughs) Psych. Did yeah. it have any Mr. Robot? I mean, maybe a little. I'll be honest. Pilots are tough. You have to get across a lot of information in a graceful way. I don't. I, I felt like the exposition was a bit clunky, and it doesn't really lean on you having a lot of prior knowledge to the series. Which, as a fan, I. I kind of was hoping that they would give me a little bit of credit. The people at USA assume that everyone's as stupid as they are. Sure. characters welcome welcome. it's four storylines happening simultaneously i'm gonna check in with them um one is a military brother who came back and now he's looking for his drug addict sister but turns out she checked herself out three months ago and may have joined Uh a cult that sacrifices themselves to people on purge night to get into a place called the invisible is that like heaven (laughs) aren't we all just trying to get invisible and what makes them think that they're going to get into this it's a newly made it's a cult kelly right but where did the idea of the invisible come from they have a charismatic leader that made it up isolated them slowly from their friends and family um, the ratio took all their money and possessions and then female to male cult leaders has there ever been a major female cult leader well, there's female leaders in this cult in reality i don't know have you I've... ever heard of a female one well, i mean you could consider t and doe from heaven's gate to be almost equals i guess could you i would consider them that. carry but on they don't really explain too much about this cult off the bat I wish they would have. It's a lot of fun. They have cool costumes. She wants to do this because her parents, her brother's parents as well, were killed during the first purge. So she wants to, I guess, go meet them in the invisible. Hmm. It's as good a reason as any and better than most. Another group, Rick and Jenna, they're going to a purge night party trying to get money from members of the new founding fathers of America in order to build some sort of low income housing. Well, that seems like an exercise in futility, asking the new founding fathers for money for poor people yeah i think they're trying to i mean maybe not be so obvious with their motives but uh rick is played by a guy named colin woodell who i talked to because he was the star of unfriended dark web i met him in austin oh, and he's right. really really great guy i think that plot line is my favorite of the purge series there's a, another a business boss lady in a high rise who's trying to close a deal on Purge Night. She's a, an office full of employees burning the midnight oil. No Nakatomi Corporation, that. It's a bit of a Nakatomi. Yeah. I mean, the Purge series, it's got masks. It's got machete sharpens. It's got serial killer worship. I think that was one of my favorite parts of this episode. At that New Founding Fathers of America party, servants came out with trays Underneath the trays were masks of serial killers, and the people serving them got to explain to the guests what the masks represent. And it was it was like David Berkowitz or um, one of the Matson killers. It was really interesting. Hmm. I'm I'm excited to watch this show. It's not perfect by any means, but do you think whatever political party it is that the New Founding Fathers of America is modeled after really uh, has shindigs like that? If they do. 
I think I want in. I need to be politically affiliated. I don't want in. Well, great. The Purge series, I'd be curious to know what everyone thinks about that. I don't usually say this this early in the show, but if yeah, I'd, I'd love to have a conversation about this in the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash Fright Day, because it's kind of a polarizing franchise, and I don't think that that is going to end with this series. Well, and the other thing about having it on USA is it's a bitch to watch. It really is. I mean, who wants to go up that high in the in the channel? Who has cable? <laughs> who has cable? You got to go to your mom's Call your house? mom's landline. <sighs> ask her if she's watching anything. Can you TiVo this mom? God, TiVo. Remember wow. that? Never had it, but yes, I do remember it. I also finished Ozark. Don't want to talk about it. It's really fucked up. The best show on TV. Good work. Really? Yeah. Are you being facetious? Or? No, it's great. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. All this talk about the USA. Maybe we could try a you know a different country, a different oh, friendly country. Hop again. across the pond. Yeah. All right. The captain's going to talk about the colonel. Oh, God. It's Rendlesham Part 3. Yes. In this week's edition of Kelly's Cryptids and Conspiracies. Kelly's Cryptids and Conspiracies. been a big week you guys um i tried to read an 800 page book that's too many pages yeah well technically it was no pages you were trying to read it on your phone right i I downloaded the kindle version but it's not 800 phone pages like it's 800 book pages so actually on my phone it's 9193 screens (laughs) it's a bit ambitious (laughs) so many so here's the thing i've been listening to interviews with all of these witnesses from the rendlesham incident As we discussed last week, we got to talk about the highest level witness, Colonel Charles Halt, who was roughly third in command on this base Mm -hmm. when the incident occurred. He's got some real definitive ideas about what happened, some real definitive opinions about other people involved, and he really wants to sell his book. So when I was listening to an interview and he kept saying, well... Just read my book. Just go read my book. I said, okay. And I looked it up on Amazon. It was like 45 bucks, but it was 10 bucks on Kindle. I was like, all right, Kindle it. I mean, there's easily, easily 60 bucks worth of ink in that thing. It is huge. And there are a lot of color photos. In fact, he complained about the fact that there were color photos, but it's rather interesting because a lot of the color photos in the book appear to be photos of like him holding different books and him as a child which I'm not really sure why those pictures need to be in. The story of how I found my way to ramble Shrendlesham is... So this is a spectacular picture of him on his first trip to Wales, and he's wearing some sort of lederhosen and hiking boots. I think that that's an example of hanging on to your favorite picture of yourself. And then here's a picture of him spelunking. Oh, look at the stalactites and mites. Why why not? Little school picture of when he was a kid. So anyhow, the point is... 800 pages of that garbage. Well, there's some really interesting stuff in it. It. Is this um, the halt perspective? It is the halt perspective. You got it, man. Well, the halt is the biggest word on that cover. Here's the thing. I have to say that of the three extensive interviews I've listened to, so first, which we covered in the first episode, was Larry Warren, who's a saucy SOB, but I think pretty damn authentic. Sure. Then we've got Burroughs, who also very authentic feeling yeah, to me. Attached, but a little different. And then halt. Halt's got an air of snake oil salesman to him that the other ones don't. And I don't think that means that the story he's telling is false. I just think his motives for coming out are a little bit different. Yeah, Kelly, I think that you've picked a side. Because a lot of people think the first gentleman you talked about two weeks ago. Well, here's the thing, though. It's a bit of a snake oil. Burroughs, I guess, would be more closely aligned with Halt than with Warren. Sure. But really, they all have very different, quote unquote, sides. Like Burroughs speaks ill of Halt because Halt apparently doesn't want them all to get together and compare stories. Mm -hmm. I think it's because he wants control over the narrative. I mean, he was an officer. The literal written narrative. So there's a copy of the Halt perspective on eBay right now for $25 plus $3 shipping. Oh. Eight available and and two people watching, which is the shocking thing. Two is, people Is he selling his own book on watching. eBay? Is that what? <laughs> oh, I should have known to look it. on eBay. I should get I, I should I really should get a copy of this book because there's some very cool things in it and a lot of what he reports is very consistent. So he has interviewed everybody associated with the incident. And again, I think that he really wants to control it, but we're going to go through and talk about his perspective and parts come from his book, but mm-hmm. a lot of it comes from his interview on The Unexplained with Howard Hughes, which is one of my really favorite podcasts to listen to. He gets some great guests on and he has British accent, it's the bee's knees. So here's the story according to Halt. First night involved three individuals, Peniston, Burroughs, and Cabinisac. 
They went into the forest, confronted some object, lost track of time on the radio for 40 minutes, about to send out a rescue for them when they finally returned. The following morning, Halt went to the police station to report police blotters, okay? This was part of his routine every day. Go in, talk to the desk sergeant, get information. But this morning he went in and the desk sergeant said, hey, do you hear what happened last night? Originally we thought there was a downed craft. It turned out not to be an aircraft. There were lights that couldn't be explained. Hmm. Halt kind of dismissed it and thought, yeah, a bunch of baloney. Like this is, I'm I sure, explainable. I think he is a malarkey yeah. kind of guy. Yeah, if you hear him, you'd really believe that. The following night, though, another thing happened. Side note, Halt did not learn about this until many, 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 many years later. And the story of the second night is a piece that I think I mentioned in last week's episode really ties things together. But we are going to have to wait to discuss it because Halt's narrative did not include this. Talking about the lighthouse. It's not the lighthouse. It's actually our only female witness. So it's pretty important. The reason her story wasn't told originally is that she supposedly had a nervous breakdown and disappeared and no one talked about it. Anyhow, after the first night, Halt was sure there was some kind of an explanation. He didn't believe that there was truly a unidentifiable Mm. flying object. Perhaps the people didn't know what it was, but he just thought this was a bunch of malarkey. The third night... Unidentifiable There you go. There you go. Nice. That was a good pun. The third night, he was taken to the spot that the sighting occurred on the first night. He saw indentations. They did measure nine times the background radiation in this area. Way back to our first episode on Rendlesham, we talked about this, that the radiation in the area is slightly lower than the radiation in the county as a whole. Mm -hmm. But in this specific area of the landing, it was nine times the radiation in the rest of the forest, which was unique. Now, in order to explain what happened this evening that they were out there, what I'd like to do is play a little bit of audio for you because perhaps the most unique part about Halt's story is that he actually has audio of what happened. Because they went out to investigate where this landing supposedly took place, he was recording for, hey, we're measuring this, we're measuring this, this is what we're seeing, because it was dark, so they weren't getting good photos of it, so he was recording audio. In the middle of the audio, something very interesting occurred. So let's listen to that for a moment. Looking directly overhead, one can see an opening in the trees, plus some freshly uh, broken pine branches on the ground underneath. Looks like someone came off about 15 to 20 feet up. Some small branches about an inch or less in diameter. Zero 148, we're hearing very strange sounds out of the farmer's barnyard animals. It's very, very active, making an awful lot of noise. This is a pigmentation. You just saw a light yeah, where? Wait, I'm going to slow down. Where? Right on this position here, straight ahead, in between the tree. There it is again. Watch straight ahead off my flash right there, yeah, sir. There it is. Hey, I see it too. What is it? We don't know, sir. So, yeah, can I get some Yeah, it's a strange, small red light. Looks to be out maybe a quarter to half mile, maybe further out. I'm going to switch off. The light is gone now. It was approximately 120 degrees from the site. Is it back again? Yes, sir. So, dust flashlight, sir. Let's move out to the edge of the clearing so we can get a better look at it. See if you can get the star scope on it. The light's still there, and all the barnyard animals have gotten quiet now. Yeah, we're heading about 110 to 120 degrees from the site out through to the clearing now. Still getting a reading on the meter. About two clicks. Meter's jumped three to four clicks, getting stronger. Now it's not. Now it's coming up. Hold up. There we go. The bat attracts the four foot off the ground. It's coming to 110 degrees. All right, just turn the meter off. You gotta say that again. About four feet off the ground, about 110 degrees, getting a reading of about four clicks. Yes, sir. Yeah, but it... <coughs> no, it's dying. No, it's dying. I think it's something other than the ground. I think it's something that's something variable here. tree right over. We just found the first night bird we've seen. We're about 150 or 200 yards from the site. Everything else is just deathly calm. There's no doubt about it. There's some type of strange flashing red light ahead. There's yellow. I saw a yellow tinge in it, too. Weird. It, it, it appears to be maybe moving a little bit this way. It's, it's brighter than it has been. Yellow. It's coming this way. Also it is definitely coming this way. Pieces of it are shooting off. There is no doubt about it. This is weird. To the left. Yeah, definitely moving oh, right. Two, two lights. Two one light to the front, okay. one light to the left. Keep flashlights off. There's something very, very strange. Get the headset on. See if it gets any stronger. Okay. Give us, give us a rundown. This is on a beta reading, too. It's on a beta reading? Okay. It still has been removed. Okay. This is falling off. 
it again. But it just moved to the right. Yeah. To the right. Strange. Oh, well, why do you left? Let's, uh, let's approach to the edge of the woods up there. You want to do without lights? Let's do it carefully. Come on. Okay, we're looking at the thing. We're probably about two to three hundred yards away. It looks like an eye winking at you. It's still moving from side to side. And when you put the star scope on it, it, it sort of has a hollow center, a dark center. It's, it's you know, like the pupil of an eye looking at you and winking. And the flash is so bright to the star scope that uh, it almost burns your eye. We've the farmer's house and across in the next field. Now we have multiple sightings of up to five lights with a similar shape and all, but they seem to be steady now rather than a pulsating or glow with a red flash. We just crossed the, the creek and uh, we're getting what kind of readings now? Getting through three good clicks on the meter and we're seeing strange lights in the sky. Uh, 244, we're at the far side of the farmer's second farmer's field and made sighting again about 110 degrees. This looks like it's clear out to the coast. It's right on the horizon. Moves about a bit and flashes from time to time. Still steady or red in color. That audio has been confirmed by Halt as being the authentic audio. Oh, confirmed by the gentleman who recorded it? Right, but the other voices in it are other officers. The time coincides. And actually, we discussed this in the first episode, but the memo that was filed mm-hmm. was filed by Halt. He witnessed this as the memo describes. One of the big pieces of evidence that has bothered people is that the memo wasn't filed for almost two weeks after the incident. In listening to Halt, I learned why that happened. It happened because... He he was actually asked to wait to file it. So let's kind of go through what happened after he sees these lights. And we're going to talk through a little bit of what that incident was just because, you know, they're kind of freaked out. It's a little bit hard to follow. But I'd be curious to know, I guess, Sam's thoughts on if maybe just seeing a red light is something that does happen. Well, okay, let's just be real here. These guys are Air Force people. Well, I know, but Sam is really smart. Yeah, and I have a chair right here at the podcasting table. I mean, do if you, this was just an average group, podcast? if this was just an average group of people hanging out in the woods and they see a weird light, yeah, I'm much more inclined to think, okay, that, that could be one of many things. I agree that they can have opinions. I also agree that I am the final word on that. That's true, and I'm with okay. Sam but on that. Sam, be serious for a second. With these guys being Air Force guys, and especially Colonel Halt, who had a great deal of experience, and if you look at his subsequent record, he went on to do some pretty high-level things. If you'll <laughs> if you'll purchase a copy of my book, it's at www.haltrules.com. You can see a transcript of this, which I testify is the actual result. From I just that. wanted to clear this. I just want Sam to say it's not normal for aircrafts to fly around with yes. just red lights on. That's all. No. There, yeah, there, there's like an international convention of where you have to have your lights and what sure. color they have to be. That's all I wanted to do. What they were seeing was bright orange red. It had a dark center and it seemed to be dropping some kind of metal. In fact, it seemed to be dropping some molten metal. Now, mm. if that sounds familiar to you guys, it's because way back when we talked about the Kenneth Arnold incident, right before the Kenneth Arnold incident occurred in the Puget Sound, they were dumping metal. There was some UFO that was dumping stuff off of it. And this sounds really familiar to them. Bits of it landed in the boat. The, the, the dog. Yeah, they ended dog. up with the publisher, ended up with it. And then he was asked to send it to the government. And he said, okay. You put it in an envelope and mailed it off, and that was the end of it. It was the end of it. And then there, the plane crashed, remember? It was the first accident in Air Force history because it was right after midnight on the night that the Air Force became a thing. When yeah. the Air Corps killed two people that happened to be carrying the material with them. Yes. Anyhow, they watched the object for a while. It came into the forest, moved through the trees, obviously under intelligent control. They tried to get closer. Then it went back out into the field. Like it saw them approaching and then backed up. Mm. Then it silently exploded into five white objects and disappeared. They went into the field to look for any sign of what had been dropping off of it. And then they saw objects in the sky to the north, elliptical, multicolored lights that were moving in unison and flying in a pattern. He was communicating through the command post. Command post didn't contact any senior officers, though, and Halt noted this. People at this point, there had been some UFO sightings because this was in the 80s. So things had happened, but people were really gun shy because everybody felt like reporting something like this was going to trash their career. Yeah. And on that, in the recording, Halt was with several other people. Have any of them come out to... And confirmed, all of them have. But did they talk about it? Yeah, they do talk about it. Burroughs was one of the guys that was with him that night. Oh, okay. The guy that we talked about last week. Yeah. So the air traffic controllers specifically were afraid of being decertified for reporting something like this because some of their colleagues 
had literally been decertified for the exact same thing. Hmm. They'd reported UFOs and then lost their certifications as a result. So there was definitely a chilling effect of those previous repercussions. Yeah. They had no interest in going down the same road. And it's not at all because they were enjoying Irish coffees. Or- no. In fact, on that night when Halt called it in and asked them to check the control tower, Eastern Radar, Heathrow, etc., they said no. However, they have since made statements that they saw something go across the screen at 5,000 miles an hour twice and that they had visual confirmation of it as well, an orange glow, and they saw it go into the area of the forest that Halt and the others were located. Mm -hmm. They were out there for several hours. They also ended up seeing two objects to the south, couldn't discern a physical shape because they were bright white lights and it was blinding almost. The same time, the equivalent of a laser beam was shot down about 10 feet from where they were standing. And Halt discusses a little bit that he did here. These same kind of laser beams came down where the nuclear weapons were being stored. Interesting. And this may be a dumb question. You said they were going 5,000 miles an hour. And I've heard you say several times similar speeds. Crazy speeds. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, what is the radius of radar? You went into that a little bit last week. Standard radar is just line of sight, basically. It's to the horizon. What would you guess that would be? Totally depends on where you are. I I mean, I... I I guess what I'm getting at is how do you determine something's airspeed if it's going 5,000? thousand miles that's an hour always an and, interesting and could that be an error no well because if they've got visual confirmation of it and they're you watching it fly across confirm something going five thousand but they had to, it was, they had to that, track too, okay though, and the radar. way that mathematics works is it depends on how far above you it is that's true. so if it's like a couple of miles above you and it's going that fast you could you could very easily see it make that progress okay yeah and i think that those are things we should consider when you think about well, this well kind of i wouldn't consider them because at this point when it's being reported and it's actually confirmed in documents that have been released I'm not going to question the people that do that for a living. I would question me if I was out there saying something flew 5,000 miles an hour. But when these are people who are air traffic controllers for a living, I'm not going to question them. We can't just take everyone's word for it. Documentation, multiple reports, verified witnesses. I can. I can very easily. They were out until 3 to 4 a.m. They were super cold. So they went back to the base, went home. Halt himself couldn't sleep. So he took a shower, went into the office and ran into his boss, who's now a retired two-star general. The boss had overheard some of the conversation on the command radio. The senior officers apparently were all tied in so that they could kind of keep up with what was going on base. And this particular gentleman apparently had it on basically all the time. Halt told him he had recorded some of the night and his supervisor asked for the recording, wanted to play it for General Baisley. General Baisley asked Williams if it was credible. So Williams, pardon me, backing up, Williams was the boss Halt ran into that night. Baisley was his superior. And when Baisley came in, Williams played it for him. And Baisley said, is this actually credible? Williams said, yes. And Baisley said, "Okay, well, what do you think we should do? General Williams said that since it happened off base, it was a British affair. Case closed. Much simpler for them because if they didn't have to get involved in something this obviously sticky, they didn't want to. I mean, like that's an ironclad excuse. Exactly. So Williams advised Halt to wait until Moreland, who was the liaison with the RAF, Royal Air Force, wait until Moreland came back from Christmas vacation. That's why there is this two-week delay. Halt is waiting for the right guy to come back to convey this story to and send the memo with. So when Moreland came back, Halt wrote a very brief memo, gave it to them, gave it to Williams to read. They may have made a copy. Williams may have at that point. Halt also gave it to Moreland, who made a copy and sent it to the liaison headquarters in England. This is the copy that has actually been released and the one that you'll see in the show notes of this episode at Friday.com. And then he finally sent it on to the Ministry of Defense. Love talking about the Ministry of Defense. Makes me feel like I'm in a James Bond movie. Hmm. He was a deputy base commander at the time. Really just wanted the whole thing to go away because he was obviously a career military guy. Did not want to have his career trajectory screwed up. No one ever came and spoke to him about it or debriefed him. And in fact, when he left the military, he told a story about all of the things that he was told in a debriefing. Like, well, you can't talk about this. You can't talk about this. You can't talk about this. And this incident at Reynoldsham never came up. And he actually asked them about it. And they said, oh, it's not classified. You can say whatever you want about it. It doesn't matter. The way that Halt tells the story is a little bit weird and hard to understand. Halt says that he never wanted anybody to know about it. He said he put it on a shelf, pretended like it didn't happen, told everybody else to do the same, get on with their lives and forget about it. Mm -hmm. Then when Warren came out in 1983 and it became public knowledge, according to him, he says that Warren was put out of the service as an undesirable, got into contact with some questionable UFO folks who went forward and reported this story. And so once the story was out, then Halt felt, oh, well, I really need to come out and 
tell the real story because this is a bunch of malarkey. Lucky, but also, I'm sure he saw those dollar signs a little bit. Well, he must have. Although, writing an 800-page book with a bunch of color photos is not the best way to make the ducats. It's really hard to make money. The printing costs when you have to do that many color photos so in a self, book. It's not self-published, is it? Um, it doesn't matter whether it's self-published or not. The printing costs for a book go up dramatically when you have to do that, which then cuts into whatever profit you're oh, going to make from it. Oh, it's part of the uh, Haunted Skies publishing. Oh, right. That one. Yeah. yeah super good one. Okay. Um, I shouldn't make fun of that. If we're going to start our own publishing company, I probably shouldn't be mocking others. <laughs> oh, so at no. this time when the story came out, one of the first things Halt did, he remembered the Ministry of Defense liaison had a copy. The acting commander gave a call to Halt to let him know he had to release the memo because you see what had happened is Larry Warren talked to all these UFO guys and the UFO guys started filing FOIA requests and the equivalent in England. This was one of the documents that they were trying to get their hands on. And so this guy who was a friend of Halt's said, Hey, just want to let you know, I've got to release this thing. And Halt begged him to burn it. All right, you've heard us talk about coffee in general and about Springy Hill Jack specifically on the show before. But now we can finally introduce this artisan roaster as a show sponsor. It took months of harassment and coercion, but Spring Hill Jack finally either lost the will to resist or just lost their minds and jumped aboard the caffeine-powered nightmare juggernaut that is Friday. Why did we stock them like Michael Myers after Laurie Strode? It's not just because we operate exclusively on coffee. It's because Spring Hill Jack offers a menu of what we consider the best coffees we've ever tasted, combined with the ethics of a small, family-run business and the black magic that manifests when you have a genuine mad food scientist feeding the roaster. It's true. Spring Hill Jack offers single-source craft coffee at an affordable price. Their coffee starts at $10 a pound, and curated blends are all $12 a pound, which is insane, and we told them that. So you can enjoy the absolute finest coffees on pretty much any budget. Spring Hill Jack batch roasts these magic beans, and would love to work with you to craft a custom roast that fits your palate like a... Like a palette glove. I don't know. Fright Day favorite roasts include Black Phillip, Reanimator, The Hessian, and Experiment Number 5, which is my nameless favorite. But you really can't go wrong with any of them. Does summer got you down? Is it too hot to brew a pot? How about a smooth, mild, cold brew from specially selected single origin roasts? Those handsome devils at Spring Hill Jack drink it all day and would love to ship a kit or a jug of this cool treat to your shack. Fright Day started off as fans of Spring Hill Jack Coffee and Cold Brew, became friends, and now we're partners. We buy it, drink it, and love it, and you will too. Check them out at Springhealed, that's H-E-E-L-D, Jack, dot coffee. Tell them Fright Day threatened you, I mean, sent you. Springhealdjack.coffee. Holt said, please burn it. Please don't let it out. I don't want anybody to know. Please don't let it out. Hmm. And the guy said, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I do think it's pretty telling that Halt was so desperate to bury the story. Like I said, even Burroughs hinted at that in his interview. Halt really fights against people getting together to discuss these issues and trying to figure out how their pieces all fit together. I mean, no matter what, when people talk about an event that he was present at, it could be dragging his name through the mud unless he stands up and makes his side known. Yeah, which is true. Which is true. So supposedly that's what he's done. That is not to say, though that there aren't things that he and Warren agree on. Halt was asked in the interview I listened to about nuclear weapons being stored at the base. He declined to comment, but he did say there's something strange about that area and it continues to this day. Military has a presence at Woodbridge. Activity of some nature continues there. He talked about Orford Ness, which is where the lighthouse is, all the high energy classified activities that were going on there. He also says that just north of here is the place that was the home of British witchcraft. Byron. I love it. To the south is a place called Bodzi, where experimental- That's all you're telling me about it? Sorry, that's really all there is. <laughs> Dude, I've got so much to talk about. You could, you could do a report on it. All right. I'm sorry. Just to the south is Bodzi, where experimental radar stations were set up in World War II. And for those of you who'd like to investigate Warren's story a little bit further, his book is called Left at the East Gate, which Halt, of course, says is full of malarkey. He actually, at one point in his interview with Howard Hughes, borders on accusing Warren of a disinformation campaign, which is pretty interesting. As Sam said in that first week, Warren seems real sincere, kind of like an a-hole, but very sincere. Yeah. And although I love a good disinformation theory, mm -hmm. 
it's hard for me to believe that that's what's going on here. Speaking of conspiracy theories, though, Halt goes on to get pretty conspiracy theory thick towards the end of this interview. He says, and I quote, There's a very large group that is very skillful in deception. He's talking disinformation, guys. We can tell you there is an agency that's beyond the government that is in the background that's pulling the strings. All of our three-letter agencies are only tools. They only report and they don't have the full story and it's unfortunate. I'm not going to tell you any more than that on the radio. I'm not the only one who's pieced it together. We are not alone. Are we are we New World Ordering right now? Well, that's definitely what he's oh, talking shadow about. Shadow government. He's talking about a cabal for sure. He's Illuminati kidding. Definitely Illuminati kidding. It's also, I think he definitely strikes me as somebody who likes to sound pretty important. Yeah. And he really loved continuing to tell Howard Hughes, oh, I can't talk about that. I'm He's sorry, I can't talk about that. Tom DeLong. Except Tom DeLong was right. He was genuinely trying to keep his project going. I think Halt's just trying to sound important. Yeah. It is important to remember that the memo that Halt wrote about Rendlesham in the show notes of this episode at Friday.com is not classified. Okay. Now, you guys, let's talk real briefly about that mysterious second night. Lori Rethelt, who was stationed at the 81st Security Police Squadron at RAF Bentwaters in England, she was there from May of 1978 until the end of 1980. Her UFO sighting happened while she was on midnight patrol. Lori's story is a little bit confusing because in some places her story is reported as happening in February of 1980, and in other places it's reported as happening in December of 1980. Potentially before. Right. But it did happen in the same area. That's very, very clear. Here we're going to listen to her talk about it in her own words. And we're just filling out our check sheet and making sure everything, and then we're just sitting there. And it was about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and it was just really, it was a, it was a clear night. It wasn't raining out, and... We were just kind of, you know, bored figuring out we got about four or five more hours left. And, you know, so we're just sitting there talking. And all of a sudden we see this light approaching that was coming from um, the area of the North Sea. Uh, so it's coming west to east. And at first it looked like an, it looked like an, uh, we thought it was just regular aircraft coming in. And, and, and we looked over at the, at the uh, runway waiting for the lights to go on, figuring, you know, well, the aircraft's coming in. I mean, sometimes they would have, not often, but, you know, an aircraft would come in. And and then it, as it got closer and closer, and now it's about maybe 200, it wasn't really that far. Um, it, it was just this, it was a big light and it just stopped. And this guy and I were looking, we noticed that the, that the runway lights aren't on. We, we see this light and then, and then all of a sudden, it just stops in midair. And then all of a sudden, it just moves up, down, left, right. And then it breaks into like three pieces and s- speeds across the runway. And now we're stunned. We're like, what the, we, you know, what was that? So we immediately got on, I got on the radio because we, you know, we were thinking, what is that? And we get on the radio and, um, and this is February of 1980. And... And I mean, we were kind of excited about, you know, police control, this is police sport, be advised that. And um, I think the guy who was the, because uh, I've thought about this, who was the, uh, the desk sergeant at the time um, was Sergeant Cohen. He was a E4 sergeant. And, and he was pretty much saying, um, you know, say again, and so we repeated it. We said, "Was oh, this, this, you know, this light, this aircraft, and you know, went, but we couldn't see the aircraft itself, the speed, the rate of speed that it was moving when it when it when it went across. I mean, it was moving in like a regular aircraft. Then when it stopped, and then when it did its movement, and then when it split into three, and then when it went sped across the, the runway, going, it was going west. Um, you know, it was just going at a phenomenal speed. And the only other thing that really caught our attention was that it didn't make any noise. There was no sound to it at all. And we were like, you know, this, we just, you know, we just didn't know what it was. Just to get an idea, if you go in this direction, if you go in this direction, you're going off base, right here is, right here is the runway. Um, From what they said, back in December of 80 is, here is where they had the landing site of, of what, where the aircraft had landed. This is the house. This is a Folly House. It's, it's at the end. If you if you're um, leaving, if you're departing Bentwaters uh, Woodbridge, RF Woodbridge, 
you usually go, you'd go up this road here and then you'd hang a left and then you'd go toward Bentwater's side. Um, anyway, when I had my UFO sighting, and here's the runway right here, it was this close. I put an X right here. And as, as for the size, it, you know, from, from the distance we were, um, oh gosh, I, I guess I'd say it was probably about the size of a car or a small truck or something. It was probably about uh, maybe two football, length, football field lengths away. And it flew across the runway. And the runway itself was then it then it was probably about roughly maybe uh, uh, a football field length away because because the runway itself wasn't that far from us. And then when it, it took off, it went straight up, and then it kind of disappeared. I mean, it flew across, and then it kind of went straight up, and um, and that was the last we saw of it. No, it broke into the three pieces at when it first approached. It came up. It approached. And we just we were waiting for it to start heading toward the runway, making its you know doing whatever, thinking it's an aircraft. And of course, we were waiting for the lights of the air, the uh, the runway to turn on. So it sounds to me like this did happen in February, not December. Halt is apparently a little bit misinformed there because he talks about it as though it happened the second night. Regardless, this whole story is interesting. Well, everybody's to me timelines are all messed why up. Why can't we get it? I mean, who's the gentleman that wants to get everyone together to get this sorted out? Burroughs, which yeah. makes a lot of sense. I mean, and he just he just says everybody has been impacted by this so significantly. People are constantly questioned about it. Let's just all get together and talk because but what about the memos and the reports? Like the problem it, is the memo since it was written two weeks late. Okay, even halt admits that he has the dates wrong on the memo. And now that John McCain's dead and his staffers are I know. busy doing other things, I don't yeah. know who's going to get this all declassified or well, whatever it needs to be to, I guess, give me some sort of concrete timeline. You know, in terms of everybody coming together, the one thing every witness agrees on, which I think Sam would be most likely to say malarkey, but it is right. the unifying it, factor you're here. You're giving people more drinking game ideas. It's great. Malarkey. All right. The unifying factor here is that everyone says this place is freaking weird. Lori has a Facebook group and she actually has a website where she kind of explains the purpose of the Facebook group to people. Very credible. Yeah, and she says, again, her words, RAF Bentwaters, RAF Woodbridge was a place where strange things happened. The atmosphere was off its axis. The energy was negative and I'm not talking about the people, but it is what it did to the people that concerns me. I often believe that I was in a very bad experiment that went sour. The December 1980 sighting was a relief to me. I think she means just that other people saw it. So everyone says in a very creepy, strange way, this place was not right. Something's wrong. Something's wrong there. And in digging a little bit more, I found some pretty cool stories that back that up. Lots and lots about what happened in the area around Bentwaters, both before and after the most famous Bentwaters incident. I hate to say it, but Haunted Skies Project, which sounds like that was uh, the, the publisher. Company, yeah. They've got a really cool website where they have assembled a ton perspective. They yeah they helped with the halt perspective, but they have assembled a ton of. How does that design make you feel? That whole aesthetic, Byron. On I, the cover honestly, there. I don't really hate it. Bob Tibbetts did the design and typesetting on this project. Byron doesn't mind the type. The type looks fine to Byron. Well, it just looks like any sort of mass market paperback. The cool thing about this site, and we'll have a link to the site in the show notes of this episode of Friday.com, tons of actual newspaper clippings that you can see in high resolution about various things that have happened around Rendlesham. Tons and tons of UFO sightings. I mean, the list is absurd. Just sighting after sighting after sighting after sighting. A lot of them over RAF Woodbridge or close to RAF Woodbridge. People are seeing things in the area between two Air Force military bases. I would actually take the opposite opinion, Byron. I think people who live by Air Force bases are pretty accustomed to seeing things flying in the air. And when something strikes them as strange. I'd say that it only takes a few. That one was not one of ours. And like but. I said, I think whatever you're going to say about civilians when we've got witnesses that are within the military who are saying, yeah, there's absolutely no way this is something that was ours. But probably my favorite story came from the night just after the Rendlesham incidents. There's a woman named Ann Clark in the backseat of a passenger car traveling south 
along some road called A12, which if you live in England and specifically in the Suffolk area, East Anglia, you may know what that means. Oh, I don't know how, that's what that how means. how they work. It's like the around, around London, there's the M1, 2, 3, 4, 5. It's, it's rings around major cities would be my guess. God, that's very confusing. It's actually me. pretty cool. It makes a lot of sense. I like a random hodgepodge of state routes and interstates and highways and the United States rural roads. We aren't on metric, that's for sure. Okay. Oh, it, it's part of the, the London ringways. But I don't think that this is rings. Well, I think that... There's spokes that radiate outward. So it's the evening... I, I only know that because I was studying that London cat murder. Late on the evening of December 28th, again, right after all of this Rendlesham stuff happened, here's what Ann Clark says. Just past the Southwold turn, I saw a figure sitting on a fence, well back from the right-hand side. I watched as it got off the fence and walked to the edge of the road in very small steps, as if weak or suffering from some illness, followed by another similarly dressed person wearing a long and voluminous cloak or habit, heavily cowled. Ooh, habit. We'll talk about mm-hmm. those later preventing me from seeing their faces. Their hands held high in front of them were holding white cards or something similar. I first thought to myself, what a stupid place to hitchhike. Or were they in fancy dress? Such thoughts were dispelled almost immediately when, in that split second, I looked back and they had disappeared. When I told the others in the car what I had just seen, they all expressed surprise, having seen nothing at all. So I thought that was kind of cool because in all of these sightings, other than the white light beings, we haven't had any creatures. Any physical. I love it. And so the creature bit I thought was pretty damn cool. If you guys want to do a little bit of digging, certainly look up some of the stuff that has occurred in and around Rendlesham on this page. There are plenty of debunkers out there and some of the debunkers talk about possible natural phenomena that could be occurring in the area. Other debunkers are not quite as credible. There's a gentleman named Kevin Condy who came out in 2003 and said, hey, hey, this was all a practical joke that I played. It's pretty ridiculous. Shove it, Kevin. Well, he wasn't even on duty at the time of the incident. And he says that he strapped some kind of lights to his car and drove around. Obviously, if you listen to the tape of Halt, clearly that's not what they were seeing. Yeah. So this guy is just an a-hole. I think at some point he probably said, hey, I wonder if I could get some attention for this or whatever. Or Or, maybe the government paid him. My family doesn't visit me anymore because he's probably old. I mean, keep in mind this happened in 1980. We're not talking like the Roswell stuff. Yeah, I guess you're right. One of the other debunking explanations is that it was Lighthouse. And this gets very confusing because, yes, they did identify the Lighthouse Beacon in multiple eyewitness accounts. The Orfordness Lighthouse. That wasn't because it was what they saw. It was because they got to a point where they could see the lighthouse and the place where they saw the lights, the lighthouse itself couldn't have even been seen from. So again, we're talking about people who are not doing drugs, on duty, very responsible, and people who are very familiar with aircraft. You get enough of those witnesses and it's very hard to say, oh yeah, it was just something that was perfectly normal. They just didn't know what it was. You said, we don't know that for sure. I think because of all of the people involved and because this was reported immediately, it's hard to believe that there wouldn't have been reports slash ramifications if that was happening. But especially because if the government could have explained it away that easily, I'm pretty sure they would have by now. Okay. Like, because that would be an ironclad. Like, these people have no idea what they're talking about. They were freaking wasted that night. And again, after listening to the witnesses, especially, Halt's the other only one that I question a little bit. That's even because in Burroughs' story, there are pieces that Burroughs says happened to him that Halt refused to acknowledge until basically he had to. So like for years he said that Burroughs did not run forward towards the object on the last night that they saw this stuff and then finally after Burroughs confronted him and said yeah I did and we've got this report from this other guy who was there confirming that and he goes oh yeah okay fine I guess you did whatever. I think Halt is so desperate to control the narrative it's difficult to tell which pieces are true and which pieces aren't but I really do trust the other two witnesses and I trust the parts of Halt's story that are not inconsistent with those pieces. Something definitely happened. It's interesting to me how much less play the Rendlesham incident gets than like Roswell. And I'm not sure why, because we've got much more evidence, many more witnesses who are alive, right? I mean, sadly enough, most of the Roswell witnesses have passed away. Being able to say, okay, this is something that happened. This is something that many people saw. And even Halt, who was a skeptic at the time, Again, the point everybody agrees on, this changed their perspective on everything. They realized this had to be something that was under intelligent control, and none of them believed that this could be something that was produced by any technology available on Earth at that time. Rendlesham, 
UK, you guys deserve props for having, I would say, perhaps a cooler Roswell than we have. All right. Let's not go crazy. I mean, really? This is a big deal, you guys. And I'm still hoping at some point in the future that we can land an interview with one of these three characters. Mm -hmm. It sounds like Halt really doesn't like talking to people and is pretty rude about being asked to do interviews. But I bet that we could get ourselves a Burroughs or a Warren. Well, thank you so much for that report, Kelly. You are so welcome. Rendlesham. Rendlesham. All right. The time is coming. This is a big one. Yeah. And this is also the closest we've been to a movie in a long time from the time we watched it to the time we talked about it. I'm Just sure a couple you could of phrase that in a more complicated way. It's, it's late. late. It's very late. <laughs> we had to watch a conjuring movie. That's right. It's time to review the nun. you're enjoying your visit here this evening now on with the show the nun is a 2018 american gothic supernatural horror film in the wanra directed by corin hardy written by gary what dubelman D- gary dauberman dauberman thanks sam. i bet we struggled with that on it as well i bet we did sam do you want to share a little bit about this movie for our audience when a young nun at a cloistered abbey in Romania takes her own life, a priest with a haunted past and a novitiate on the threshold of her final vows are sent by the Vatican to investigate. Together, they uncover the Order's unholy secret, risking not only their lives, but their faith and their very souls. They confront a malevolent force in the form of the same demonic nun that first terrorized audiences in The Conjuring 2. Do you want to start with the Wanra or Corin Hardy? Well, Corin Hardy. Let's start with let's start with Happy. Episode forty-eight. We covered the Hallow, which is Corin Hardy's. I, I think it's his directorial debut. It is a film that Kelly would not dare watch these days. No, I wouldn't. It's a bit of a trigger warning, Kelly film. An incredible it's film. It's, berries. We caught it at the uh, Stanley Film Festival our first year there. God, that's r- did we? Yeah. Really. It was a midnight. Yeah, you guys did, and then I I didn't catch it because I had to go watch something else, and I had to watch That's it later. Right. It was but you and I, Kelly, are you sure it wasn't yeah. you two? Yeah. yeah, Sam and I did the final girls the next night. You were taking turns. How do you remember that? You have that all written down God. somewhere, you weirdo. What? I don't remember it's anything. Job, just guys. Kidding. It's fine. Like it's impossible for me to remember things. Corner Hardy snatched up, given a script, and told to make it work. Well, let's give him a little bit more. I mean. He was probably given a suitcase full of money as You're well. You're a lot more critical of this movie than I am. I will, and say. We'll, we'll get into that. Corrin's got a vision. He's a, uh, what is he, Irish? Say Irish, probably. And he first started as a special effects monster maker at the age of 12 in his bike shed. And he made Super 8 films with his high school friends. Such a great guy. It's a bit of an endearing little career entry on his Wikipedia. It seems like a great guy. I really did enjoy The Hallow. The world that he made in that was really interesting because it, it, it was fairies, Kelly. Yeah, it's but a, it was it's a fairy flick. Much but, nice but ones. Super grim and not like delightful at all. More the, of the real folklore. Fairies. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. And I, I got to say, I was pretty excited at the announcement of him taking a crack at the nun. Part of the Wanra. I don't know why you love doing that. Trademark so much. Wanra. <laughs> Conjuring. Conjuring 2. Annabelle and Annabelle 2. Annabelle, LOL, like, uh, I don't know. I mean, like. Do you think they're going to make another Annabelle? They are. They are? Yeah. It's a cinematic universe based on the haunting stories of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Up for debate as well. Well, it is. Yeah. The Nun was pretty much completely made up. And, and all their other stories are completely made up as well. Well, some of them are based more on fact than, well, not fact. Enfield. <laughs> like, like that house <laughs> is at that address. The Ronald DeFeo murder? It, yes, exactly. That did happen. And then the murders happened. But they take a lot of liberties. You guys ready to dive into The Nun? Yeah. I'm ready to dive in. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let me just give you a quick summary to start out, guys. A priest played by a fake Antonio Banderas. All right. Let's give him some credit. I was going to give him credit. Can't pronounce his name. And we have a new nun played by a fake Vera Farmiga. And then we have a Frenchman you are played giving, by you give the a fake Thomas Hardy. Summaries, this. and this is like, this takes the cake. This is the it's rudest true. you've been to three professional actors. Well, I'm just talking about the way they look. That's fine. And we, sound. Well, that's a little ridiculous. I actually really liked all three of them. I thought they did a good job. Well, then I'll Byron, let you, you give... hated Demian Bashir. I thought he did a great job. 
let Byron talk about it. I didn't hate him. I just didn't think that the script that he was given was Can good I, or well executed. Did you watch the TV version of The Exorcist? Uh, the series? Yeah. I, I watched the first three episodes. There's a priest in that who reminds me quite a bit of the priest in this as well. Okay. I just think there's something with the priest role and the Spanish accent. I don't know. It just works. I think it works when it's done well. I, I think two things are wrong. I don't think the script was good, which is interesting because it is Gary Dauberman who wrote it, which is it's good. Yeah. It's a good film. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I guess they had more source material to work off of, obviously, because it's a massive book. Then yeah, this story, book. well, I think it's fine. But this guy also wrote Annabelle and Annabelle Creation, so I don't. So he yeah. has some hits and he has some misses. You know, I agree that the dialogue was pretty cheesy here, but I didn't hate it as much as you did. I've been avoiding Taisa's name. Is that how we're, is that right? Taisa Farmiga? No, it's not Taisa. I think it's Taisa. Taisa? Yeah. Taisa Farmiga, Vera Farmiga's younger sister, which we talked a little bit last week on the show. 20 years difference in age. Vera plays Lorraine in the Conjuring franchise. She does. We had a a big debate about whether or not they were the same person. Or related, at least. They're not related to each other, but they both are devout Catholics with clairvoyant abilities. Interesting. Very interesting. That's helpful. She has done great in many films that I have seen. I do not feel like she was given much to work with here. I really liked her in The Final Girls. Truly a wonderful film. And if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend you guys check that out. She does a great job in American Horror Story Coven. Yeah, absolutely. And she's in a little mumblecore flick called Six Years that I really enjoy as well. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, check that out. I mean, I, I don't want to say it too many times. I just didn't really like the script. Exposition heavy. And also there's a lot of dumb lines that made this a pretty There silly, are lots of dumb lines. It's a silly but flick. I don't know. There were parts of it that made it feel almost like a nostalgic movie. Like it was a throwback to a cheesy 1960s, 1970s. Like sure. with the tilting camera shots and, and things like that. It felt reminiscent of cheesy 60s, 70s so, horror. Speaking of that, I actually need to go back and watch Night of the Living Dead again. Because I swear there was a shot like mm-hmm. from... From the ground next to a tombstone up at a character in the dark. There's a lot of really great set design and I, I can definitely see nods to hammer horror. I don't know if I'm, I'm so familiar with and that. Any of the universal monster movies, ridiculously foggy forest. Yeah, and they're opening like, doors and there's fog. literal fog just kind of like <laughs> yeah. wafting which everywhere. Just, which is I awesome. Loved it. Which is so over the top. I thought yeah. I thought it was great. The crucifixes everywhere. I really enjoyed that. I, I thought there were some elements that really set the stage for this to be. The rotating crucifixes, no. All right. And no. that, See, that, I love it. That is a device that the Wanra is known for. And yes. It's, I'm good with it. It's back. I and, like it. And it's in full tilt. It's kind of like full swing. but mm, it's I gotcha. Like, okay. It's just kind of silly and really loud. The jumps are, are there. There's a lot oh, of them. so many jump scares. And I loved it. And they're good. But like, God, I got to say, I, I bet there's 30, yeah. 30 they, It was just one scares. on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. It just felt uh, like I was going yeah. through a, a, a really, really long haunted house that's on a track. A dark ride. Yeah. And it was cool. There's some ones that really got me. There's some that I thought were sillier than others. But those to me were the things that stood out. These scares because they were they were pretty cool. Some of them were really gnarly. I actually didn't even look to see what the, what the nun was rated because oh, yeah. honestly, I had no interest in seeing this movie because I do not like the Conjuring verse or whatever sure, the idiots the, call it. the Wanra. Right, sorry. The, the correct name is the Wanra. Thank you so much. And it was actually funny because anytime they refer back in this movie to the previous movies, I'm like, wow, that looks familiar, but like which one, you know, which one's it from? Yeah. It doesn't matter. They're all the same thing. They but are. there was some really gruesome imagery in this, which I, I really mm-hmm. loved. Yeah. And the whole thing overall reminded me of like a concept album that Venom would have done in 1983. <laughs> all right. Just like over the top Satanism and gore, silliness and atmosphere. There's a lot of that, but then there's a lot of heavy religious ideology. It's called the nun. Well, it is called the nun. I agree, but. (laughs) They were at a a cloistered The whole thing literally start to finish as a religious story. It didn't need to be so heavy. We didn't really need to pull the blood of Christ into this. It's called The Nun. Yeah. It's about demons. It takes place at a convent <sighs> with a priest and nuns. I, I, I don't think we should give any spoilers away because I think like sure. a lot of people are probably going to go see this. But It's honestly, you guys, it's 
fun. No, this is not some amazing, you know, groundbreaking film that's changing the face of horror cinema. But this is a really enjoyable, scary movie. If you love a good jump scare and a way to escape the reality of the true horrors of our world, go check it out. It's fun, guys. The one thing I did want to mention is it veers off a little bit. And you said this as I was thinking it, Byron, in the theater. Yes, we talk in the theater. Yeah, we were being rude. Well, I did call out that girl immediately. Remember that? So fast. Shut her down. It it veers into Da Vinci Code slash National Treasure territory. Keys and walls. Some shorter than longer. Yeah. It was aggressively adventurous at the end. A little Bruckheimer-y. Yeah, it was a bit Bruck. I'll always take some Bruckheimer. Uh, Frenchie as a character. Best. Had a lot of problems with him. He's obviously the comic relief. I didn't need that relief. And maybe this is my problem. Maybe I don't like comic relief in horror. I like an oppressive darkness. Yeah. You know what's interesting, Byron, is I think that the role that Frenchie served had nothing to do with comic relief. I think that the role he served was being the non-religious element in the religious movie, which is ironic because it's what you were just complaining there wasn't enough of. Frenchie reminded me, I I liked him. I I can see how he wouldn't work for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I liked him because he reminded me of Larry Talbot in The Wolfman again, like a lovable buffoon. Always the the sidekick in those old movies, like in The Mummy. The Brendan Fraser Fraser movie. The Brendan Fraser movie. Sure. Yeah. He was just a nice guy, and it was interesting because it played up the whole situation with Irene. He thought Irene was this beautiful girl, but you know she was becoming a nun. Steve Zahn in National Treasure. Yeah. Steve Zahn is in National Treasure. I've never seen any of those. Oh my god! They're actually. You shouldn't talk shit about them. They're so much fun. I just don't like having fun. Well, yeah, they are really fun. So don't watch them. Okay, probably. I thought this movie was fun. That's the easiest way to classify it for me. You know, an example of a a character that is in the same role that I enjoyed more is is Rupert Evans as Malcolm in The Boy. Oh yeah, the groundskeeper in The Boy. Mm -hmm. It was just a little bit more. You don't like Canadians? You don't like French Canadians? French Canadians. Yeah, I really like French Canadians. Well, yeah, me too. Because obviously, last week we did Summer of '84 and RKSS is obviously they're French Canadians and they're the best it's unrelated to that I just don't like silliness in my brutal horror film. I like silliness and I'm not in for a tonal roller coaster I just want it to be like a like an anxiety blanket but the opposite of that just I think down... this did that nothing but jump scares left and I right I think you're thinking of a garbage bag okay well that's so and way too much of the nun I just want to say that real quick yep Showed, way, showed a lot showed of none, and the, the CG was um, CG at the end fine, was disappointing, but yeah. you don't need that much of it. The CG of the castle was what really did it for me. Yeah, it like, didn't bother me. Well, I read that they had to do a, a couple reshoots. James Wan did the exterior reshoots, and Corin Hardy did the interior. Blame Wan. Well, I'm not going to blame Wan. I'm going to put this squarely on the back of Corin Hardy. The well, fact if that Wan they had did to do the external reshoots. Well, I'm just saying the fact that they had to do reshoots in general. Is, maybe they didn't. Maybe the way that Hardy had it first was better. That's that's possible. Well, hey, say what you will about Juan. He is very, very wealthy. He's good at making movies that make money. He is. Uh, I guess that's all. Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised by this movie. I didn't have many expectations going in. I've enjoyed all of the Conjuring movies. I don't love the Annabelle ones quite as much, but yeah. I think they're watchable. I think this was much more fun than I expected it to be. I actually enjoyed the characters quite a bit. Yes, the script certainly could have been better, but there were enough jump scares that I wasn't thinking that much about the script. I was totally okay with it. I give this movie 7.0 neck cracking noises. Oh, fun. You guys know how I feel about this movie. You don't like it. I'm just not impressed. I think that there's moments that really worked. I I found myself pretty scared and... Startled at least, right? Startled to say the least. Real loud. Maybe cut 15 minutes off of this. Too much exposition. Silly film. There's some fun elements, but I think it was overshadowed by what I would consider a really, really poor script. I would have loved to see that younger Farmiga do a a better horror film because she's done better ones in the past. So I I, I give this... uh, 4.0 4.0 computer-generated long, sharp teeth. You're good-looking teeth, I thought. They were fine. I honestly wanted to hate this movie. I went into it with no expectations. The more time passes, the more disdain I have for the Conjuring universe. I think I had some warm feelings for the first one. Those are completely gone now. That could be why I enjoyed this so much in the end was because I was really dreading watching The Nut. And it turned out I should not have been. Well, I probably should have been dreading it. I had all the all the elements in place there to not like it. But in spite of that, Corn Hardy really pulled something out here. I, I think it's probably pretty 
obvious that he was working under some severe constraints, but I, I think he did great work. And you're right, the script was not good, but I think it worked on a cheesy kind of self-aware level. I ended up enjoying this in spite of numerous missteps, but there was a lot that was done right. And I mean, there was, this was genuinely scary in places, to me anyway. I agree. Um, and I'm not saying like... I have a backbone of steel or anything, you, but you screamed very loud. I'm going to give the nun 7.0 puddles of nun blood. And those are our thoughts on the nun, which is available in theaters absolutely everywhere. It's looking to, I guess, open with $40 million, which is pretty good. Opening is that night. Is they're hitting? It's I worth- think it's great. I'd like to see another one, guys. Fun, fun, fun. Well, I don't think they're going to stop here. No. Uh, Until the wheels fall off. The Nun to conjure huge $40 million plus debut. You know, I wish every good independent horror movie could do the same thing. Wouldn't that be great? Um, let us know what you thought of The Nun. We're a bit split here. So I'd be curious to know how you feel. Tweet us at Fright Day on Twitter. Leave a comment below this episode in the show notes at FrightDay.com. Send us an email, contact at FrightDay.com. Of course, it could be your thoughts on this movie. It could be about anything. Or we could have a full discussion about this in the Facebook group, Facebook.com slash group slash FrightDay. We're also on Instagram at Friday. You can DM us on there. You know that? On on Instagram. Yeah. You can say whatever you want over there. Can and should. One of us will say something back. Depending on how racist the response is, I may blame uh, it on Byron or no, don't, please don't Kelly. Blame it on me, but Kelly's Always fine. blame it on me. It's fine. And if you like the show and want to help us make it even better. You can grab something spooky at shop.frightday.com. So many of you suppressive people out there picking up the pin. How have those been selling? Knock that out of the park. They've been doing really well. Have they? Yeah, yeah. They're going to be gone in no time. Uh, A handful, I know, I've shipped the golden variant to. So I'd be curious if you've got it. I want to hear you talk about it on social media because you're special and And, we really appreciate it. And there was only one of those special variants that went out because I rifled through the box and took out four of the five available. You took all? Well, it's not five. It's 20, twenty. I took nineteen of the available Please twenty. Please don't take the twenty, Sam. They're just they're so good, and they're they're made of gold. All right, and it's not real gold. Just no, so they're you know. made of gold. All I right. looked at them; it shines like gold. Kelly's glow in the dark abduction tea also available. And summer's over, so we're gonna have a bit of a sale, a closeout on those tie dye variants of the two gold for school shirts. Woo! I'm not there. a tie dye person, but man, those turned out pretty cool. They are pretty cool, and there's not many of them left. So shop.friday.com, check it out. And if you're caught up on this show, if you, if you have found yourself listening to the same episodes again, you don't have to do that. No, there are 168 of them. Also, over 50 episodes of Captain Kelly's Cryptids and Conspiracies, Cinema Autopsy, Byron Serial Corner, and The Writer's Room available to Patreon patrons. Hold on, you're telling me that patrons get 50 episodes that yeah. nobody else does? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, For I didn't four, realize that. $4. And, spoiler alert, we're recording a Captain Kelly's We Owe You One big time. Really excited. It's being inspired by a friend of the show. Yeah, a very cool, a, a really great person. A really great Great person. All right. I thought you said they were a friend of the show. You got me all flustered up here. Over 50 things available to Patreon patrons at the $4 a month level. And not only would you be giving yourself a lot more to listen to, you'd be supporting the show. And it really does mean a lot to us. Mm-hmm. But most helpful of all, leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way to get us inside of New Year's and up charts. Get us up those mm-hmm. charts and into those ears. Please. That'd be really nice of you. Next week, do you, what are we doing, Kelly? I put it together. I haven't looked at it since. Come on. Just uh, sheets.google.com. Let's pull this up real quick. Uh, We're still here, listeners. Just uh, give us a second. Just bear with us. bear with us. Because Byron will leave all this in. Of course I will. Mandy? Really? No. Yeah, it is. Next week is Mandy. I forgot about that. Yeah. Really? Yeah, right? No. Yeah, I can tell. And next week... A b- b- pretty exciting little episode planned for you. Panos Cosmatos follow up to Beyond the Black Rainbow, a Nick Cage vehicle called Mandy. Whee! It I looks don't watch anything with Nick. Absolutely insane. People are very excited about this one. It's gonna be a, a fun week, and not just because of the movie, but be, be, because I get to hang out with my two friends. Yay! Who so, are you seeing, Kelly? Where can we find you on the internet? You can find me at Kelly Fright Day on Twitter, or you can email me Kelly at FrightDay.com. I'm at Sam Fright Day. Email me Sam at FrightDay.com. And I'm at Byron McCoy on Twitter, Instagram, and Vero. Byron at FrightDay.com is my email address. And until next Fright Day, I'm Byron. I'm Kelly. And I'm Sam. I'm not on.
been listening to an Audio Wool original produced by Byron McCoy. Theme music provided by Cemeteries. For more programs like this, visit audiowool.co.